0: Oh, I want to kind of dive in now into your business with Coop Ale Works. How did y'all get started with this
1: business? How'd this come about? Um, poor decisions and lots of circumstances. Generally, uh, how I answer that question. No, but we uh, there were three of us that started the brewery, and we all met in early 2006 in April or so, and really just again happenstance that we ran into each other through some social connections and forums and one of the guys that we started the brewery with was a home brewer and he had been home brewing for three or four years at that point and was talking about you know in this first encounter I had with him just about the prospect of starting a brewery in Oklahoma and so that folded into my background in the venture space and the finance space and at the time I was with I2E um, as director of enterprise services there and I had spent five years prior to IT or I2E in the venture space and it just was intriguing to me and with my background with fundraising, uh, we started talking and within a few weeks we set up some kind of uh, low-key beer tastings in the back room of Cheevers and that was really the first encounter was that we had collected people to kind of explore this idea and pick people's brains about what they were drinking back in 2006 in Oklahoma because it was a lot different than what people were drinking on the coast or um what people were drinking, you know, internationally. And so we were really interested in whether we could whether there was a receptive audience to craft beer uh, that really didn't exist at the time. And especially with our pretty prohibitive alcohol laws as far as three two beer and the lack of availability of beer and grocery inconvenience. And so we started exploring that. We worked through the summer. We started brewing together in August and then we spent the next basically two years Putting together plans and going to dozens of breweries around the United States, sitting down with engineers and brewers and financial people to try to investigate their methods of success and their histories and and build a, a baseline strategy to kind of kick Coop off, which we did in the summer of 2008 and is when we raised the initial capital found our building and then we spent about six months building out this little five thousand square foot metal shack over at 51st and western next to the old speakeasy bar and then we started brewing beer commercially on january 9th and 09 and selling on march 3rd of 09 so
0: been doing this for quite a while now it's
1: been a while now yeah over a decade so uh
0: talking a little bit about more you specifically in your role what's your day-to-day like what's your job like
1: um, you know, it's it's uh pretty broad. Uh, I like to generally respond by just telling people that I steer the ship, um, and that's that's really at, at the thirty-five thousand foot view. That's that's the objective right now. But if you back up in our history, you know, I was a small partner in the business, and then as we had partners move out away from the business, um, you know, obviously in the in the company grew and our distribution footprint grew. And our growth just became this uh, overwhelming focal point. And so as I become a larger and larger you know participant actively in the business when I quit my day job, particularly in February of 2012, um, started along the road of growing the business regionally. and it became very quickly apparent that over the next three or four years, what we needed here, was a leadership team that could adequately lead individual departments or silos or functions within the organization because for a long time i was the accountant and i was the legal guy and i was the regulatory guy and i was doing bonuses here and setting sales objectives and that kind of broad management is just not sustainable and so over the past five years essentially um you know blake jarlem our head brewer who's also a partner has been on board with us uh, since very early on in 2009 on a part-time basis and then 2010 when he came full-time. But uh, for a long time in the teens, you know, Blake and I were the only ones here. But now we have a director of sales and market and we have an HR director and then we've got Blake running the operations. And so collectively now we have a management team that is capable of managing individual silos and autonomously, you know, really running those divisions of the business. And so my functional role at this point is mostly strategic um, you know at times I'm fairly technically involved uh, depends on what we're doing in the back but most of that technical involvement is around expansion new equipment specking parts or systems that we're adding into the matrix trying to figure out you know what new canning line do we want you know to increase our canning capacity tenfold things like that but uh, even so with that particular component like the technical side I'm really passionate about but again we now have staff on board that are you know fairly technically competent and have some really technical manufacturing backgrounds so that's good and really to get to the core of your question right now and for the past year and a half i spend about 90 percent of my time working on the armory expansion
0: i I want to Talk a little bit about um, setting up the management team and all the silos uh, for like new entrepreneurs. Like, what advice would you share to
1: like those you know on the hiring process? Sure. Um, I, I think for me, it started as an objective to bring talent in that was good at things I was not good at. You know, I'm good at a certain number of skill sets, but I'm not. I can't sell anything. And, you know, running HR programs and benefits and, you know, things like that's not, uh, not where my strong suits are. And, so, and I'm definitely not a brewer, just to clarify that. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to bring talent in that could adequately and autonomously run those divisions. And so from a hiring standpoint and really even a, a conceptual objective, the first thing for me and, and our group collectively as we've grown has always been to hire talent that's smarter than we are. Uh, you know, obviously in those specific channels and also hire people who are going the same direction we're going. And that's been probably the biggest focal point over the past five years because on our team right now, we have 29 people. We operate in six states and we have a total sum of two people on staff who have been here longer than five years, myself and Blake. And so you can think about that either in a positive light or a negative light, but really in a positive light, it's the fact that, you know, over time, companies have attrition, but what we've been really successful at is defining the company's objectives and in the hiring process, ensuring that we're absolutely transparent with where the company's going and where we want people to fit in that matrix. And if people don't, you know, if they don't want to go where we're going, then we don't want them here, frankly. And the second aspect of hiring is, is kind of the subsequent step, and that's investing in people. And so the family and the team that we built here is probably the thing that I'm most proud of over the past five or six years. The brand is great and have all the, has all these positive elements to it in the community and elsewhere, but the people and our team here are really what functionally make this business turn every day.
0: Uh, you did mention this, and I was going to ask this, because uh, I know you're not a brewer yourself. You're more the business person. So how, I guess, what have been like the pros and cons of that?
1: Um, the pros are you know early on even from day one back in 2006 when Mark and JD and I met one of my you know kind of tidbits and inputs was that we really had the opportunity in the research phase to set a foundation for how we wanted to move forward and how diligent we wanted to be and how we really wanted to run this thing I mean we were starting a brewery from scratch in a market that really didn't have a production brewery outside of brew pubs which aren't packaging breweries and so in doing so, with, with my business background in particular on the finance side and on the growth side, I wanted to ensure that we approached the business as a business and not as a hobby because so many brewers, and frankly the super majority of them, I would argue 90 plus percent of them, started as hobbies like ours did and then you know grew into this passion for the hobby. And we had a passion for it, um, but for myself in particular, I've got a certain drive around the business and the mechanics and the fundamentals of ensuring that we are creating something sustainable. And so as we've grown, focusing on the business has made me and and having a business background frankly has made me a little bit of an outsider in the brewing community. And so when you generally go say to an industry event where Ninety-nine percent of the brewers there, or the owners, were brewers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit different of a scenario here, and so I would say the the only real negative has been really isolated to me personally, in that I don't I don't get as much connection with the brewers, and they're, I'm not received as well into the group. And so, in some instances, I'm almost like an outsider in brewing circles. You know, um, I also kept a very low profile for the first. You know, seven eight years of this endeavor, Um, and as we had the original two founders exit the company, and I became, you know, kind of the single responsible founder. um, It it just kind of necessitated that I take a larger fronting role in the company visually and publicly, and so that was a little bit of an adaptation that I had to get used to. But the positives to running this thing like a business and not a hobby, and that's not to say that other brewers don't run their companies like businesses, but really, we focus on some really core business fundamentals. We hire our staff with that in mind, and we look for people who can add value to the business and not necessarily to beverage. I mean, we can, if you want to come in here, and we hired a data analyst uh, about a year and a half ago, and this was a role that I would wanted to have in the business for several years, but we couldn't afford the position. We didn't really know exactly how the role would pan out, but this is a, a function in our business that gleans us a, a, just a treasure trove of information and valuable data and decision points and allows us to make better decisions so that we can exercise more creativity because we have more capital, because we're more efficient here, or you know we're making mistakes sooner than we should because we are looking at other breweries to find out how they've screwed things up or how they've done things well and trying to look at those decision points and make yeah, our evolution smarter, frankly, and in a, in a manufacturing business, particularly in beer, in a community that's very altruistic and just very passion driven, the business component for us and, and the level of acumen that we have on our teams here internally is very rare, I think in the brewery business.
0: So you mentioned, uh, what were some of those data points that when you hide this person, you, they found like, I didn't realize that would be useful or, you
1: know, that was just, Oh, that's fascinating. Sure. Um, we have a number of systems internally that we use for uh, financial purposes, that we use for production efficiency tracking, things like that, that all really dovetail into each other and they're disparate yet connected. And so I've made it a point over the past decade to ensure that we're our accounting technical processes are in line and that we have made the right decisions very early on. And we've always had this mindset of collecting data But we've never really had the capacity or the time to sit down and extract value out of it. And so that's really where the position was. uh, That's where we wanted that position to focus. We knew, though, bringing someone in to fulfill that role, it would take a year for them to really understand the nuts and bolts of the business. And there have been a lot of short-term tasks over the past year and a half. But really, now we're getting into the point where, hey, we've got all this data. We're pulling sales data out of ECOS or out of you know, syncing systems from all of our distributors in six states on a daily basis. And we can see velocity movements in individual stores now. And we know that, you know, the homeland on 18th and class and is moving X volume per day. And we know when there are gaps in the market, we know how to better manage our inventory and our production. And we can back into uh, really ensuring that our product stability is better and that the, f- the throughput on the shelves and the velocity Um, is where we're targeting or it's not, you know, and we can see detrimental impacts to the brand or to sales movement, things like that, and then ultimately start making better production, sales, and investment decisions with that data.
0: Kind of want to get into uh, the Oklahoma Venture Forum. In April, you're going to be speaking there, but before we kind of talk about your presentation, what you're going to be talking about, why do you think people should join the Venture Forum?
1: So... Uh, for a number of reasons, I think. I've been exposed to the OVF for, geez, almost 20 years now and started going in 2001. Um, so I've seen it for quite a while. I, I, was, I was in the industry and kind of in that realm for about seven years, and then I left Oklahoma. And when I came back, I went into more of an institutional finance role and uh, really haven't participated much. But I can tell you, having spent about seven years of exposure in the startup community, that OVF is is where some of the brightest minds and some of the most tenured entrepreneurs have spent a lot of their time and a lot of their reinvestment and or kind of philanthropic contribution to the startup community. And it also gives you pretty direct exposure to a knowledge base and resources that aren't really highly publicized in Oklahoma and frankly anywhere a lot of times. And really a lot of those revolve around sources of capital and, you know, strategery and, you know, consulting input and things like that. Um, so the, I think the value of, of OVF is the mix of people that are there and the learning opportunities and really, again, the base of knowledge that exists amongst Oklahoma entrepreneurs as well as financiers.
0: So since you got the talk in April,
1: can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking and presenting about? Sure. I'm going to spend most of my time talking about the armory as, you know, a, a current event obviously and something where we've spent a lot of time and resources over the past couple of years and where we're is going to consume a lot of our time over the next couple of years and also create a massive impact here in the city around the state capitol complex the northeast side of Oklahoma City. But I really want to talk about brewing and the and the beer industry in general as an a, a really kind of a an outlier from a fundraising perspective, and you know we spend a lot of time talking about diversifying industry in Oklahoma, and a lot of that talk is around either high impact or high level concept industries, whether it's biomedical research or you know autoimmune disease treatment or um, you know mechanical devices, things centered around the oil and gas industry that may be new technologies and hardware technologies but you know, there are also plenty of other industries that just aren't near as sexy, frankly. And I think in Oklahoma in particular, we've done a great job of focusing on our resources that we have, particularly around the OU Health Science Center, around the oil and gas base that exists here and all the new technologies that have sprung out of that industry over the past, say, 20 years. And you see evidence of that littered throughout Oklahoma City, you know, the new GE, the Baker Hughes Research Facility, Um, obviously the PHF, OMRF, and all the research institutes and kind of privatization of technology and things that are coming out of the university research arenas. Um, But there are still a lot of other industries that get ignored and or just don't get as much, um, just, just aren't as well known. And there are lots of investment opportunities. And frankly, the need for investment and the number of resources available to entrepreneurs that exist in those kind of non-sexy industries is extremely high. And it's harder to break into that network of seed capital. And, you know, entities like OCAST and I2E have done a great job in these scientific frontiers and technological frontiers. But there are a lot of opportunities for seed capital. Funds, I think, and, and, and I say funds not as in individual organizations, but just in, as in money and dollars flowing in, there's a lot of opportunity out there for either investors to bring money in and also an opportunity for entrepreneurs to start to drive uh, focus around their industries in particular. So for us, we're 12 years old and every time we've gone to raise money and or expand, it's always been this kind of nightmare scenario where we're the first ones doing this thing in this industry in Oklahoma and it's been challenging almost every single time whether it was when we launched the business and we were trying to find a little bit of equity and a little bit of debt and everybody on the debt side looking at us like we were nuts because there wasn't a brewery in oklahoma and what bank is going to loan money
0: i remember reading an article that uh i believe was steve Lackemeyer did about that and you were saying that exact same thing like there was back then when you first started out there was like no bank that wanted to give you money and now there's some kind of knocking down your door yeah sure
1: and the armory frankly is this really 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 cool project that's going to have a massive footprint, not only you know geographically there on that site, but also an economic impact that is really unlike anything the northeast side of Oklahoma City has really ever seen. And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of economic impact. Well, yeah, it all sounds fine and dandy and all the banks are interested. But once you get into the core of it, we're taking this brewery model and we're expanding it and adding other, you know, other new businesses to our model that put us right back in the same boat that we were in 10, 12 years ago because we're getting into the hotel business. So we're getting into this culinary business that involves a taproom and a restaurant and a speakeasy and all these event support spaces that have culinary features and the pool club, bar. And really, banks have been really interested but not really receptive to the total deal structure and scale. It's a large deal and when you take a package to a bank that says you're gonna spend $36 million over 20 months, um, including the money we've already spent over the past couple of years in development, it becomes again a little bit of a, uh, a scenario where virtually every bank is casting doubt, you know. And then they're trying. Then so your solution there is to trying to find alternative methods to finance your deal. And I think a lot of people would have given up over the past two years, particularly with the number of hurdles and challenges we've seen, not only from. You know the scale of the deal but to the hurdles logistically in the facility i mean it's a 1938 building that has certain safety of life limitations that increase cost and there's no functional plumbing electrical or heat and air anywhere in the facilities so the amount of capital we have to spend to get it up to code and to get you know air flowing through the space and the lights on is fairly significant and then you run into things like it being built in 1938 and street rights of way going through the building and having to replat the entire block and deal with you know, you know estates that have handed down ownership of certain parcels through eight different estates since the 19 teens, you know, basically. And so, been a lot of challenges. Um, and and the least you know, not the least of which is the fundraising and and the capital and how you structurally put this deal together. Um, and I think luckily I've got. Some historical background and tax credit work and historic preservation and at least exposure to deals like that and even participation and structuring some of those deals long ago. So I've got familiarity with it, although it's very dated. But it's been this kind of sink or swim reintroduction into the space. So,
0: so you do talk about having multiple sources. It's not just like coming from one place. I I want to elaborate a little bit more on that. Like uh, as from like maybe like a like a new business trying to like get you know, funding and collecting from different sources. Like, how do you manage that? Like, what are some different avenues
1: that you pursue? For us, it's a little, you know, it's it's strangely, I guess, a little simpler, but also more complicated. You know, in the startup space, you're looking at equity funds, you're looking at seed funds, you're looking at friends and family, and a lot of kind of very nebulously defined sources of capital. Um, and And capital can come from anywhere. I mean, and it does come from everywhere. And for us, you know, in this particular deal, we're not raising more equity. So that component of the capital stack just doesn't exist for us. We have cash on the books that we've been using for development expenses over the past couple of years, and we have a number of other sources of capital in this deal. But really, in our deal, the economics don't work well. I mean, the structure, the mass, and the scale of everything is just not... It's not self-supporting really, without a bunch of creative solutions. And so, just like starting a business, whether you're looking at starting up and mortgaging your house, or quitting your job, there's there's some sacrificial components. There are some lucky components, like you find somebody that's interested in this industry or concept, and you find some equity in that source, and maybe you get somebody to guarantee some debt for you, and or you you know, lever some things with your retirement savings, whatever the case may be. Um, For us, the structure is very multifaceted. You know, it starts with a core foundation of a financial need, and then we look at, okay, what are we capable of debt servicing with these new concepts and with the appropriate reservations around, you know, our financial forecast? We can't just go in and go, yeah, this hotel is going to sell 99% occupancy, 365 days a year at an ADR of, you know, an average daily rate of $300. Well, those things aren't possible. So you go and... You you evaluate the market, you evaluate what you think you're capable of doing, and then you start applying sensitivities to it and really go, okay, well, what if I only hit sixty percent of my projected occupancy? Or what if my ADR slips by thirty dollars a night and what's that impact? So you go through these same this sensitivity modeling that's for us pretty sophisticated and very granular, and we have really robust financial planning tools that we've developed over the past decade. But for startup businesses, a lot of times, that's the biggest void of knowledge is the financial side. And so I think for startups...
0: Like how would they find that knowledge, yeah?
1: It's it's usually, you know, it's it, it, it's hard to find that, that kind of knowledge base and or capability uh, inherently in a third-party consultant or um, some source of knowledge like that. And a lot of times, people are just winging it. I mean, I can't tell you... In, that when you sit down at OVF, you can probably see 20 entrepreneurs in the, in the audience that have been successful who really either had no clue what they were doing financially early on. They either winged it or they were just lucky. And you know, all three of those things happen in, in a combination, frankly, I think, in most startups. But I think for us, we're fairly lucky to have the institutional knowledge that we have amongst our leadership team and the work history and background to be able to assemble something this financially complicated. Um, and, you know, again, after you're starting looking at sensitivities and you're looking at debt service, this thing involves historic preservation tax credits on the federal side, historic preservation tax credits on the state side. It involves a number of local and state incentive programs that assist in the viability of the project. And it also involves buy-in from a lot of different parties, whether it be the state, you know, in the disposition of the asset or it be the city it's um it's a number of agencies, was department of tourism department of uh commerce and you know frankly everybody in the state you know is really interested in this thing succeeding because it does bring a really unique property and project and Magnet over to the state capital area. So
0: yeah, I'm really excited to see it get all finished. So uh, I think it's definitely going to be a fun place to check out. It'll definitely be where I probably spend the majority of the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine this is my blood, sweat, and tears have gone yeah. into this. Um, so uh, I, uh, on the subject of funding, still, is there like any sources that like you think people should like be aware of, like new entrepreneurs that maybe they overlook or don't realize about?
1: I think the the most overlooked sources of capital are industry relative, you know. And, and not to say that there, there's not a lot of readily available institutional capital available around um, any individual industry, let's say. And, and there are sources like that. There are biomedical research, you know, disease treatment, things like that. And there are focal points in oil and gas. But I think what people... Often fail to realize is the rate or the incidence of which practitioners in their own industries are interested in furthering other technologies or other startups in those industries. So, you know, if you're in the telecom business and you've got a telecom solution, well, there are legitimately large. Telecom players in Oklahoma that don't have Bell at the end of their name or don't have Bell linealogy to them, you know, there are newer startups that are exercising really—they're um, extracting value out of federal regulations. And you know, finding someone who can use your technology in their business is oftentimes a great source of startup capital because there's uh, collusion's a bad term, but because it has a negative connotation to it, but you know somebody who can utilize your technology to further their own business in effectively a selfish manner you know that they're all everybody's in that self-interest you know basically with their own business
0: probably say more like collaboration
1: yeah exactly and so i think those those ca- kind of very nebulous sources of capital are often overlooked and the resources and capability of players inside industries and the partnerships and funding capabilities and they may not necessarily be significant day 1 but when you have a player in the market that buys into your concept or your business or your execution what you have subsequent to that is a story to tell that you have a player who has kind of additionally in addition to investing in the deal has you know corroborated the validity of the concept and that goes a long way for you know additional capital rounds or other sources of capital particularly when you get into things that are more structured whether they be a collective structured seed fund or you know institutional money um, on the PE side or even on the venture side, you know, when you're talking about bigger players and bigger offerings, that validation component, particularly where you've had third parties who are invested, is is a big mover, I think, and a big opportunity that a lot of people miss out on.
0: That's good to and know. A lot of
1: people are always kind of immediately thinking, oh, well, this is a concept. I need $3.5 million to launch it. I just need to go find some VCs to fund the thing. Well... You know, very early stage deals don't get funded by VCs typically. you have typically got, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars already in the cap stack and in the base and in the development of a project. And I think the other thing for entrepreneurs to understand is to really understand the, the technology commercialization process. And that was some of the, one of the things on the, techni- on the technology side. That was our biggest focus at I2E. And, and there's a really almost programmatic stepstone path to get technology introduced to market and to grow it. And without understanding that and with having false expectations of what you're going to achieve or where you're going to get capital or where you're going to get validation, if you don't understand um, the necessary steps and the necessary accomplishments, frankly, um, that's where people I think often misstep as well.
0: What's great about doing business in Oklahoma?
1: Everything. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, I think for me, having lived in Oklahoma most of my life, with the exception of a few years, this is obviously home, so that's one of those things people often ask, well, why did you start a brewery in Oklahoma? Well, that's where I live and that's where I'm from, so that's the first answer. Um, I think for people looking at Oklahoma outside the sphere, essentially, there are a lot of advantages to living elsewhere, Um you know, first and foremost is cost of living. Secondly, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with some people at the Chamber, and Jonathan Stranger and I were sitting there talking about the historic evolution of the food and beverage business in Oklahoma City and in Oklahoma in general. And in that light, we were just talking about socially and culturally what Oklahoma has become over the past 20, 30 years versus what it was in the 80s. And one of the things that I often tell people is, if they're if they're not interested in Oklahoma City as a relocation alternative or they're evaluating it versus a, a larger city or some other environment i i often challenge them to tell me tell me show me something that you can do in this bigger city that you can't do here that has a material impact on your life you know you want to go to the la philharmonic great well you can go to the civic center is it the la philharmonic no but is seeing the philharmonic in oklahoma city versus seeing the LA Philharmonic is that going to be like a detrimental impact to you or a material impact to you in the grand scheme of things? When you have all these other positive things, you have a microcosm that has virtually no traffic. You have a city that is extremely progressive, both Oklahoma City and Tulsa, from a from a social investment standpoint and a capital investment standpoint. And you know, business and society and culture follows dollars and in investment. And if you're not putting resources and if you're not committed to growing the city culturally then you're not going to make progress you're not going to be able to recruit companies you're not going to be able to recruit people and i think frankly people are oftentimes you know they tire of living in a big city you know and if if a big city doesn't fit your mo long term this is the greatest this is the next greatest place you know if you want to live in a big city for the rest of your life and you want to live in you know dc you want to live in chicago la then more power to you But really, at the end of the day, if that wears on you and you want to find a place to move, Oklahoma's got a lot of opportunity. And that's the other thing that I often tell entrepreneurs is that what you have the opportunity to do here is make a massive impact. You can be the big fish in this little pond, essentially, whereas if you take your startup business to the Valley or you take it to Chicago or you take it to Charlotte, you're a a smaller player. Your capability on a grand scale, particularly in one given industry may be the same but your opportunity to participate in the community um, which is another really valuable factor in in oklahoma city and tulsa as well and just the state in general is that people are genuinely interested in being a part of the community and that drives a little bit of social responsibility it drives philanthropy it drives just personal engagements amongst in amongst the leadership in the city and and you have the opportunity to make a big impact, you know, whereas you don't necessarily have that in a lot of other cities, and or states.
0: I got for My last question, I'm just going to ask: Is there anything you want to talk about, share, or discuss that we didn't touch upon that you?
1: Oh man, um, I think um, I think the one thing I, I, I will mention is a lot of people look at Oklahoma history and you look at the oil and gas concentration, there's been a lot of press recently over the past few years about Sam's book, Boomtown, and about this boom and bust cycle and, you know, our over-reliance on energy, things like that. I think the all of those things are true, and, and a lot of the history speaks for itself, but we have built an over-reliance on energy at times, but I don't think people are always ready to step outside of that reliance and and make risky investments and or make commitments that have long-term consequences and have long-term sight pictures. And so as a state, as we hopefully look to diversify the economy, that takes long-term investment and it takes stepping away from some short-term gains with the oil and gas industry at times and ensuring that we don't get too tunnel vision around this cash cow that is oil and gas and so people talk about it all the time but they're not always actively and they're not instrumentally engaged from a legislative process because they're either distracted or they're reliant or they're dependent on this and so you know stepping outside and, and allocating resources and funding to entities like ocast and to the oklahoma manufacturing alliance and other industries or other entities that actually serve the betterment and growth of Oklahoma-grown companies is, is really where the political apparatus starts to become real and where we see those tangible benefits over time. But it is a very long-term engagement, but it, it does take short-term investment, and it takes refocusing on things outside of oil and gas. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate everything you've told us today. No problem. Glad to help, and uh, we'll look forward to OVF in April.